You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Church, ohana, aloha, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here once again on Sunday for Reality Honolulu's Digital House Church. My name is Riz. If I haven't met you yet, I hope to one day meet you in person if I haven't. And uh, really excited for what God is doing in our midst with kind of our new home at Central Middle. And as things kind of start opening up, really hopeful that we get to do so much more in person Um, and together as it's meant to be, right? This is great and good and God sustained us, but obviously so incomplete to how God has made us and how we need to function. And on that note, I want to make sure before we get into the Word of God, you are aware of something upcoming that is really exciting that I want to invite you to, but also make sure you're aware of and uh, that you're invited to it. So that is our Easter celebration. Um, What is most important to the Christian faith, uh, as we know, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Easter is, is a time to celebrate and reflect that great truth that gives validity to the faith that we believe. Um, And so Sunday, April 4th, 10 a.m., we'll be gathering in person or having a live stream option. So wherever you're at, if you're able, if you're comfortable, um, in person or live stream, we want to make sure we're together and and with that so we can celebrate our Lord's resurrection. We will be meeting at the same uh, home that we've done all our events on, that we do Wednesday nights and our Christmas Eve service and our worship night. All the information is on realityhonolulu.com or on social media or email or whatever you, however you get uh, our news. Make sure you're subscribed and uh, in the know. But uh, it's going to be a great time where we can worship together and fellowship, um, safely spread out, wearing masks. Uh, safely have, you know, a bunch of treats and coffee and refreshments and then bentos for lunch. You can stay and hang out and safely gather um, to eat those as well. And um, it's a family service. We encourage you to bring your keiki. We're going to have some family safe keiki and family games, lawn games, and um, give activity baskets for the kids. And so Anyway, it's going to be an awesome Sunday, and I can't wait to see you in person for those that can make it, or like this if you aren't unable to make it in person. Um, We'd love to know if you can make it, so kind of important there. Um, On the website, under events, or again through anything we send out, um, there is a link to an event, and we'd need to know, we'd love to know if you are coming and who's coming with you so we can plan, and then obviously there is a limit, it's a large limit but there is a limit to how many people we can safely gather here and park and restrooms and all that kind of stuff. So again, hopefully see you for that uh, one way or another. But without further ado, we're going to get into the word of God today. Um, We are finishing off chapter 17 of the wonderful book of Acts that we've been making our way through each week. And so I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts 17 and going to be looking at verses 16 through the end of the chapter to verse 34. Um, What I'll go ahead and do is I'll go ahead and just read this with you. Um, The verses will be on the screen if you don't happen to have a Bible or a phone open to a Bible app. But uh, again, this is the NIV translation 
go ahead and read our text today that we're going to be looking at and uh, maybe give a little commentary, pray, and then get into it and, and uh, allow the Lord to speak to us. And so here it is, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Uh, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say to us? <clears throat> trying to say. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Again, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. And said, people of Athens, I say that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship? And that is what I am going to proclaim to you. And then he goes into it. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29. Therefore, because of that, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the wor world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, 
also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this text that we have, this historical account of how you move, specifically in the city of Athens with your servant and our brother Paul, and the way in which you used him to share and communicate and and wrestle with these intellectuals of who you were and what you did. And God, even with Easter coming, we are aware of the significance of your resurrection from the dead and its implications for all our lives. And so as we read this word, as we look at it, God, we just pray that you would speak to us and that we too would decide for ourselves who Jesus is. Who do we believe that Jesus is and what he said he did? Pray that you would anoint me to do this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So... We jump right in once again. Our narrator, Luke, right, is, is writing this historical narrative. It's like reading a story where we picked up last week. We jump right in. And what's happening, like the story we jump in, is a part of Paul's second missionary journey, right? That he's leaving Syrian Antioch, just north of Israel, and he's traveled, and we've seen him go through all these cities, and now he is in the city of Athens. And at this time, he's alone. He doesn't have Timothy or Silas with him. Um, Most likely, Luke is there to kind of write this down, but again, it doesn't explicitly say that. But for all intensive purposes, Paul is alone in the city of Athens. And what's happening, if you didn't pick up, he he gets there and he's walking around and he's distressed. Like he's perplexed, he's distressed. It's heavy on his heart because he's walking around and there is statue after statue and there's an, an idol after idol and there's all these things that have been made as forms of worship. There's all these other gods and idols that are being worshipped and praised and lived for in this city. Again, right, Athens um, is bringing in the, the smartest and greatest of the world at that time, um, this great empire that was, that was, uh, you know, overtaken by the Roman Empire. But nonetheless, you see these Greek and Roman gods portrayed in the city. And historians say that at the time that Paul was there, there was approximately 10,000 people in the city of Athens, but upwards of 30,000 statues or idols that were made of gold, silver, stone, temples being built. And so the the, 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 the amount of statues, three times the population. And so Paul, he's walking around. He's never seen something like this, right? He's coming from a monotheistic culture of one God, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's seen a few things here and there of other gods that have been worshipped along his travels. But now he gets to the center of it all, of Greek and Roman mythology and gods and He's overwhelmed by it, and he's perplexed, and it says that he can't help but start preaching the gospel. 
in the synagogue, in the Jewish place of worship there, but then just in the marketplace day in and day out. He's preaching that, that there's one true living God, right? And he sent his son Jesus, and that is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that died and rose again to take away the sins of the world, to restore a relationship with the one true living God. And all these other gods are false gods. They're false deities. They're idols that they should not be worshipped. And that according to scripture, that no other gods should be worshipped before the one true living God. Going back to the great, the great uh, the Ten Commandments there. So Paul's doing this, and obviously in this polytheistic culture, many gods being worshipped, many different schools of thought, many different religions, many different people putting their hope in these statues and idols and temples and whatnot. Creates a stir. They're like, hey, you're a babbler. Hey, what are you talking about? What's this strange idea of this other god and this other religion? And so what happens is, is they take him to the word I can't say, Areopagus. The Areopagus is a very strategic and important place, and it's this rock outcropping not far from the Acropolis, where the Parthenon is in Athens. If you ever get a chance to visit, uh, me and my wife did years ago, um, you can go to the same place, and there's actually a kind of a bronze plaque with this sermon on it, because what happens in our text today is known as the Sermon on Mars Hill. And so that Areopagus is also known as Mars Hill. And so the sermon Paul gives is on this rock, this kind of protruding rock cropping, um, not far in, in line sight of the uh, Parthenon in the Acropolis, right in the heart of Athens. And so not only is it close to and surrounded by temples and uh, of other gods and, and the hotbed of, of religion and, 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 and deity, but also this Areopagus or Mars Hill was a place where this would be the place where the high court met. This would be where all the top intellectuals of the world would gather, gather and wrestle with ideas, specifically when it came to not only criminal matters, but religious matters as well. And so what's happening here is that they take Paul to Mars Hill and the greatest of the world's intellect in this high court is grilling Paul. I mean, it does, the stakes are, cannot get any higher than they are now. And Paul, all alone, is surrounded by the greatest minds the world has ever seen, the greatest philosophers and religious people. And he begins to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ being the one true gospel that supersedes all their gods. Pretty much is saying all the 30,000 statues around you are subject to the one true living God and you are not to worship or, or give allegiance to any of these gods, but the one true living God that you do not know, but I'm going to tell you about him. I mean, do you see that? Whoa, Paul, empowered by the Holy Spirit for sure, bringing the good news to the people of Athens in the sermon of Mars Hill. And in this crowd, right, there's, there's um, 
The Stoics there we read about were pantheists, and the Epicureans we also read about are atheists. And so when Paul is declaring some of these statements in this, this sermon, um, it's literally uh, his declarations are denying the premises of what this group believes. Right? And even the statement in verse 25 he makes in the sermon we just read that, that, that God is the life giver, right? He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything really drove the truth home even further and it really directly attacked these Epicureans' belief that God was absent. Or for the Stoics in the crowd, uh, that their belief was that God was everything. But again, as the giver of life, God is actively here and he's not contained in creation. And so what happens is as Paul begins to explain about this Jesus and what he did and this God and what he did, that he created everything, that everything in existence is made by the God of the, 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 the Bible, right, of the Hebrew scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, creator God, created everything. And his son, whom he sent, died and rose again, giving validity to his claim to be God and to save humanity. God is very real, but God is very unique, and he created everything. And what Paul does in this sermon is not only does he try to point out these other gods, he points out these unknown gods, right? If you have so much intellect, how come you don't even know who you're worshiping? Well, let me tell you about the one true living God. He's playing off what he's seeing. He's trying to reel them in and connect to their culture. And then not only that, but a couple times here, he actually quotes their own poets, right? In verse 28, our text goes on today, and it, it, he, Paul says, In him we live and move and have our being. Well, we don't know this, but they did. This is from the work of Epimendes. Um, so they immediately would go, wait a second. You're, you're connecting here what we believe in, but you're showing us how it points to your God. That's what he's doing. He's reeling them in here. He's a master communicator in this sermon. And then in the final line in verse 28 today, he says, For we are indeed his offspring. Again, this is from the writings of Aratus, which they would know says this, Always are full of Zeus and all meeting places of men. The sea and the harbors are full of him. In every direction we all have to do with Zeus, for we are also his offspring. And so he's pulling ideas, uh, this religious idea that they believe in about their god Zeus, that we are offspring of this god. And his point was that as creatures of intrinsic dignity, having been created by God, the God of the Bible, men ought to refrain from false worship. 
Again, he's trying to relate and connect to their own belief system. Reel them in to say, hey, you do believe in some sense of creation and of worship, but it's misguided. It's false. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to bring to you the truth of who the one true living God is, that he is the creator God that created all of us, that we are made in his image, and he is the one God that we are to worship, and we're to have no other gods beside him. Again, this is a powerful, profound, and controversial very controversial statement, as you might gather. Paul himself is, is witty, he's studied, right? He's, he's using their own beliefs. He's seen statues of these unknown gods, and he's trying to bring them in. He's reasoning with them. He's trying to communicate to them logically and intellectually. And what he's really doing is he's boiling down two questions. And I think two questions for us today as well is here's Jesus. Here's the gospel. I just presented it to you. Who do you say and believe this Jesus is? What are you going to do with this truth now that I just told you? And also, what are the idols getting in the way of worship to this Jesus? And again, the Sermon on Mars Hill in the high court with these top intellectuals, the response to these ideas are mixed, just like we've seen. Some don't believe some go, eh, I want to hear more about that maybe. Right? Some reject it. Some are a little interested, but not now, a little later. And some do believe. And we, we, we actually have a couple of their names. We don't know much about them. But we do know that the word of God went forth and um, a man and a woman got saved. One of those being a part of the high court. One of these very intellectual, very important and influential people gets saved. And the two simple questions that I want to ask us, again, are the same. For us listening here, not in Athens, not 2,000 years ago, but in Hawaii or wherever you're listening, who do you say and believe that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Number two, what are or are there any idols getting in the way of worship to him? Again, the same question, the same gospel, the same presentation God presents us today. And for many of us, we've heard this before. But the question is, who do we say Jesus is? What do we do with this historical truth this figure, Jesus, this person, Jesus, born in Nazareth, died in Jerusalem. Over 500 eyewitness accounts and evidence that he truly did bodily and physically rise from the grave. What do you do with that? What do we do with that? 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said that it wasn't good enough just to leave it be or not care or even to say, well, yeah, I know about Jesus. I've read about him. I believe that he was real and I believe that he was a good moral teacher. He had a lot of really great things to say. and There's a lot of principles that I want to live by or that I think the world should live by. And, but you know what? There's no difference than him or He's not really that special, or maybe he's just a prophet, or maybe he's just a great moral teacher. And what C.S. Lewis did was he gave a case, I want to quote you part of the book, that we can't just leave it there. We can't just do that for a few reasons. And he says this, C.S. Lewis quoted from Mere Christianity on Jesus. This is C.S. Lewis speaking, and he says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense uh, about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Again, I know that quote can be confronting. But again, that is exactly the same thing Paul is presenting. That is the exact same thing that C.S. Lewis was presenting. What I present today is that we have to do something with Jesus. We can't just leave it as a mere moral teacher. We have to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and what his resurrection means for us and the implications it has for us. But there's one God and created everything and he sent his son to die for us, that person being Jesus. And when we believe in him, he becomes our Lord and our Savior. That is the gospel and that is the thing that all of us, young and old, regardless of who we are, need to wrestle with. That was what Paul was doing. That's what the Bible does. That's what the gospel does is it confronts who we believe that Jesus is. But even as Christians, even if we believe that fact or if we don't, there are things that will get in the way, that will take our attention and our praise, and we put our hope in, and we make them gods. All right, if we do not know Jesus, we have not accepted him, well, there could be a myriad of things that we believe in, that we put our hope in, that we trust in. There could be other religions that we're a part of and other gods that are our god. Again, this was very true to, to Greece. To that time, there was 30,000 different statues or temples or gods or mythology that you could believe in as your God, as your deity, as the thing in which you put your hope and the thing in which you worshipped. That can be true. But also as a Christian that does believe that 
God is who he said he was, and Jesus is, and we believe all that, and we're Christians, there are still things, there are still functional idols that we can put in place or hold on to or hope for that actually, if we're not careful, will take the rightful place that Jesus has in our lives as the one true living King and God and Lord and Savior that we are to give our attention and our praise and our worship to. Tim Keller wrote this, wrote this amazing book, Counterfeit Gods. If you ever have time, you should read it. So good. He explains what an idol can be. Again, we think of an idol as gold or silver or wood or made with hands. But idols can also be really anything that gives our attention off of God. He says this. This is Tim Keller quoting from Counterfeit Gods about idols. He says this. Anything in life can serve as an idol or a counterfeit God. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to, that, that you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And so not only to the non-Christians listening to this, but also to the Christians and the believers. Who do we think that Jesus is and what are the implications for that for our life? And then also, are there any idols, are there any things, even good things, that are getting in the way of worshiping our God fully? And again, these things might be really good things. It could be a spouse. It could be kids. It could be um, other things like success or a job or wealth or stuff. And you're so adamant about those things and you, you worship those things. Those things direct you. Again, you could love Jesus, but again, things, these things can get in the way. And if you're not careful, they can become idols and get in the way of the worship of the one true living God. So in the same way that Paul on that rock outcropping in the middle of Athens presented the truth of the gospel of the one true living God that is to be worshipped above all gods and all deity and all idols for us today. Is that true for us? Are we worshipping the one true living God? Do we believe that Jesus did and said what he did? Because it's offered to us. We were created and meant to be in union with our God, worshiping our God above all things. Let's pray for our time of worship now. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are God. You are creator God that gives everything its life and its breath and its existence and not only that, God, you made a way for us to be with you and intimate with you and close to you. And that's through your son, Jesus. You made a way to forgive our sins, to remove the thing which stopped us from being with you. And now we can boldly approach you. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that treasure. Thank you for that news. 
God, we do pray that you would search our hearts now, that if anything in the way, even good things in our life, if we've made them idols, if we've made them gods, we repent of that. We want to turn from that, God, as painful as that is. We ask, God, that you would become supreme and the God of our life, that you would be on the throne of our hearts and nothing else would get in the way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.